The reading is taken from Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you uh, get dumped by a girlfriend or your daughter gets an eating disorder, When you've uh, committed a dreadful sin, or if you lose your job, if you grieve for the loss of a loved one, if your wife has a cancer, if a couple find they can't have children, or a woman is crippled by loneliness, or a man is crippled by his marriage, sometimes, even when we're Christians, we begin to wonder whether God really loves us. And some of you know what that's like. It matters evangelistically, doesn't it, when we talk to our non-Christian friends. They often ask us, but what about suffering? And what about the troubles and hardships? You seem to go through them as much as I do. So what benefit is it to be a Christian? But of course it also matters personally. Sometimes you think you get to a stage in the Christian life where it must be like what it's like to be climbing up a mountain and suddenly look down and be frozen with horror. I've never climbed up a mountain, I don't know what it's like, but I imagine you could get halfway up and it's been okay so far and then suddenly you realise how exposed you are. Maybe the wind's got up and you feel like you're going to be blown off the side of the mountain, you're going to fall to your death, and you're clinging on, you're thinking, I'm not sure I can hang on anymore. And you think, any moment now, I'm just going to lose it. 
And I think Christians get to that point in life sometimes, and it's really important to know at that point what we're going to see in this passage. You see, it was written to uh, Christians living in Rome in the first century by the Apostle Paul. He wanted to recruit their support for his mission to Spain, and so it was very important that they understood how suffering remains part of the Christian life. But it's also, of course, important to people personally, then in Rome, as now in London. And in this passage, we essentially discover that being a Christian is not like climbing up a mountain face all on our own, but that actually we're fixed to a line. There are many who've gone before and many after us. And at the top, the Lord Jesus, who is at the top in heaven, is hauling us up on a rope. And we will get there in the end. And even when we've lost all our strength and we let go, he's never going to let us go. And we will get to the top in the end. And when you're in that storm, that is a fantastic comfort. So let's look at the passage. It breaks into, into three. Most passages seem to, but um, this one does as well. And we find in verses 28 to 30 that God works all things together for our likeness to Christ in glory. God works all things together for our likeness to Christ in glory. Let's look at verse 28 again. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Verse 28 begins, and we know something. For our confidence and assurance of getting to heaven are based upon something we know as Christians. Not about ourselves, but something we know about God. You can see it there in verse 28. In all things, that is, in everything that happens, every event, every circumstance, every moment, including the good and pleasant times, but most remarkably, even in suffering and pain and failure, God works, turning the impact and the outcome of even dreadful experiences and sin, weaving them together so that in combination they come together to achieve his complex plan for our good. It's a plan, he says, for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. In other words, everything is directed by God to contribute in some way to our spiritual good, not necessarily for our pleasure or joy, as we know, but for the spiritual good of his people, those who love him and therefore are trusting his plans for our future. Because we were called, or, or rather summoned powerfully by the voice of God in the gospel, to this eternal purpose... Well, what is it? 
Here Christians discover that God has been weaving together all the events and all the circumstances and all the moments of our lives towards his glorious design. It's been said before that this verse is therefore like turning our lives over, much like a Moroccan carpet. My wife and I recently went to a, a Marrakesh in Morocco, and it seems to be the main reason for going there is to um, go shopping. And uh, in Marrakesh, there are endless, um, extraordinary and exotic stalls that are called souks, these markets. And, of course, some, some of the markets are carpet markets. So, of course, we went to buy a market and... Um, uh, went to buy a carpet because you have to do that when you're not a market. We haven't got that much money in the, in, in, in the, in the souk, and the, you know they pulled down all the carpets off all the walls. And uh, you want to try those blue ones? And down came a hundred carpets. We tried one of those red ones. We sat down with sweet tea, just watching. It's a fantastic experience, and we bought one. You have to buy one. You feel sorry for the guys after they pulled down all these carpets. And we brought one. <laughs> we brought it home. And of course, when you when you put it down the wrong way round, you look at the back of it. As has often been said, it looks so chaotic. All the threads are in such a mess. You think this is such an ugly and chaotic carpet. But then, of course, you turn it over. And you find that actually all those threads are contributing to a beautiful and rich design. And that's how it also is with our lives. The apostle is turning our lives around and saying, you know how it feels like so much meaningless chaos you turn it over, and if you look at it from God's side, you'll find that he has a glorious design. Well, how can the author possibly assert that a death in the family, or a cancer, or an illness, or a difficult marriage, or a divorce, a heartbreak child, or the death of a parent, or a cruel colleague, how can those things possibly contribute to something's good? They're clearly not good in themselves. They're dreadful experiences. Well, verse 29 tells us, for, here is the reason, those God foreknew, that is, all those upon whom God has set his affection and love from before the world began, not just foreseeing who would choose him, but choosing who would love him. He also predestined, that is, from before creation, he planned our destiny for us. Well, what is it? What is the great plan? What is his great destiny towards which he works everything in our lives? And you see it there in black and white. To be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that we might become like Jesus in all his spiritual glory and moral beauty, literally in his image, as in fact we were created to be. You see, he's training us to become like Jesus, much like an elite athlete, I suppose. I, I've, down at our gym occasionally, you see Daley Thompson down there training, and still at sort of 55 or something, he's you know, pounding away huge amounts of weights and doing extraordinary things with his body. And he has this little collection of guys with him. They're all huffing and puffing. They're all red-faced. And you can see the pain they're in, you know, losing the pounds and gaining the muscle. But, of course, they're training, being trained by him to become an athlete like him. To be conformed to the likeness of his son is God's purpose in our lives. That he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. That Christ might be preeminent amongst a great family of people. Adopt, that we might be adopted as brothers into God's family to bear the family likeness, which is holiness. Not because he's lonely or anything, but because he wants to share his goodness. And so, so many millions are being saved as his brothers and adopted into the family. And our destiny, the good to which he works all things, even when other people treat us dreadfully, God steers the impact towards helping us to become 
like Jesus because his holiness was so shaped by learning to remain faithful to God, not just when times are easy, but when times are hard. God's purpose is our Christ-likeness, that we might become sons of the Father and brothers to Jesus. It's much like growing up in a normal uh, family. You know how it is in a family. You have to learn the family way. Uh, Of course, there'll be many happy times in a family, good times, and you learn the family way of celebration. And, of course, there are times of discipline, and there'll be a family way of discipline. And then sometimes there's grief, and you learn the family way of grief. How do you cope with failure at school? How do you cope with difficulty and pain? How do you cope with sickness? The family will have its way of dealing with those things. And as children of God, we need to learn God's family way, the way of Jesus. This is the good outcome that comes even in a world that's that's corrupted and full of sin even as we are sinful and others are sinful towards us. And yet, even from those things, God weaves these things together that we might become like Christ. But how is that outcome secure? How can we be sure that we'll get there? Well, verse 30. For those he predestined, that is all those chosen to this destiny before time began, he also called, that is summoned through the gospel, and all those he called he also justified, declaring us just or righteous and acceptable to God in the righteous life of Christ. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, even though we haven't yet been glorified, it's written here in the, in the past tense because it's so certain that the apostle could write it in the past tense. Having done these things already for us, he will most certainly take us to glory. The point is, you see, that no one Absolutely no one, none of us here who are Christians, will ever be left behind or will never be dropped off the line. It's sometimes called, this is sometimes called the golden chain of salvation, for God's plan cannot fail to bring us to his intended destination of being like Christ in glory. So we learn that we thought we were climbing and in danger of falling. But in truth, we're actually in a chairlift attached to the most massive steel hawser, which is God's loving plan being worked out in our lives as he hauls us up the cliff to his side. So amazingly, God works in all things for our good, the likeness to Christ in glory. But at that point, you might, be, might say, well, what about our enemies? There are many Uh, spiritual powers opposed to God's people. There are many people who are hostile to our faith. When the storms build up, how can we be sure of getting there in the end? They're frightening enemies. Well, then we learn secondly, well, God is for us, so no one can succeed against us. God is for us, so no one can succeed against us. Look with me at verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, 
more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Of course, if God was still against us, we'd have absolutely no hope. But if God is for us, if the almighty creator, the divine supreme being, if God is for us and on our side, how can we fail? Even on judgment days, we stand before him. If he is for us, then we are secure. Paul poses three questions to reveal this security. Thinking of the heavenly court to come, when our enemies line up to accuse us. Verse 31, who can be against us? He's not denying we have um, spiritual and uh, hostile earthly enemies. He's just denying their success. If God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, I mean, we often stress, don't we, that the, the son, the Lord Jesus, volunteered himself to death. Here the apostle also, of course, stresses that God volunteered his own son. He, he sent his son, his beloved son, his only son, the one he loved, to die in our place on a cross. If, if the father volunteered his own son to die for us, how could he possibly not also give us everything we need to survive? It was the greatest sacrifice imaginable. The story is told of a, a Peruvian truck driver uh, driving down a mountain pass to return to his village. And as he turned the very last bend into the village, he was horrified to see in front of him uh, a group of foolish people playing around on the wrong side of the road. And, and he st- as he steered out of the way into the other lane, he saw a little boy with a satchel walking home from school and uh, realizing that uh, there was one for the many. He had steered the truck, ran over the little boy, killed him, screeched to a halt, and all the mayhem that surrounded as people sort of came up to the driver in the, uh, sobbing in the, the, uh, uh, the front of the truck. Uh, somebody explained the reason why he was so heartbroken in particular was that this boy was his only son. In other words, in order to save those people on the wrong side of the road, he'd driven over his own son. And the Bible is saying that's what God has done in Jesus. That in order to save us, he's driven over his own son. Now, if he sacrificed his son, how could he possibly fail to give us the other things we need? Alongside the all things of life, in verse 28. See, how could he possibly sacrifice his son on the cross to save us? And then have that salvation fail for lack of resources and make his son's death a waste of time. How would he do that? He would not. Or here's another question, verse 33. Who will bring any charge? It's God who justifies. In the heavenly court, if Satan or our enemies try to accuse us and and point out our wickedness and weakness, our unsuitability for heaven... They cannot succeed because God has already declared his judgment day acceptance. We are justified and accepted by God in Christ's righteousness. So if Satan were to uh, shout out before he himself is destroyed, God, look at her, look at him. She doesn't pray properly. properly. He doesn't evangelize hardly at all. She doesn't love you very much. He doesn't even love his wife. They certainly don't love their parents or their neighbours. They're a disgrace. She's a failure. He's a sinner. And God will answer, I know. I know. 
but I have already accepted them in Christ. So shut up. You see, who can bring a charge against us if God has already accepted us? Or again, verse 34, who is he that condemns? I mean, can anyone bring a condemnation to stick on us? Paul says, consider the career of Christ. He died, suffering the penalty for all our sins as the lightning conductor, drawing into him the lightning of God's wrath for all of our sin, all combined in him, all as he hung on the cross. So our penalty has already been taken by him. Our condemnation has already been poured out on him. He died for our sins. Moreover, he was raised, having finished paying for our sins. And his life accepted into heaven as the acceptable life, which is counted as ours. So if he's raised, then we're raised with him and on our way to be with him. Yet more, where is he now? What is Jesus doing at the moment? In the uh, factory that was um, uh, referred to earlier, uh, a couple of months ago, some of you may have heard me tell the story that I was chatting to the foreman, who was um, a sort of tough guy called Dan, covered in tattoos, uh, shaven-headed. He was the foreman in charge of all the workers and uh, quite a a tough character. And um, we got talking about various things. Anyway, he took away a book by Rico Tice about uh, Christianity and... uh, I caught up with him a week later, and I said, uh, what did you make of that? He said, yeah, it's interesting. He said, really interesting. He said, um, had a couple of questions. One of those questions was, um, he said, Jesus, yeah, he came alive again after he died for us, yeah? And I said, yeah. He said, um, you don't hear much about him now, is he? Where is he? I said, what do you mean? Well, where is he? I, you know, I don't hear anybody talking. Where is he? I said, he's in heaven. He said, ah. Oh. I said, he's there at the moment. He's interceding for us. He's representing us to the Father. He said, all right, that would explain it then. (laughs) And sometimes we'll wonder, what is Jesus doing? I mean, why isn't he here just kind of running around convinced? What's he doing at the moment? Right at this moment, right now. The risen Lord Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. He's not paying for our sins all over again. He did that on the cross. But he's reminding the heavenly court. You see, he's reminding his Father with the scars on his hands and in his side and his feet. That he's died for us on the cross. That our sins are paid for and that we are adopted into his family. He is the permanent guarantee that we will be with God in heaven. Because at this moment he intercedes for us, representing us before the Father. He is our permanent advocate. He is our man in heaven. See, Christ is the judge himself, and he stands in heaven as the security for our future. And so we discover, if you like, that the ski lift that is taking us up to heaven has a cover over it. And whatever storm anyone wants to blow at us, whatever rocks people want to chuck at us, they can't knock us off the cliff because we have a cover over it in God and in Christ our Saviour. And so the apostle arrives at this climactic paragraph. I can't do it. I can't do it justice. I've said to you before that in Romans 3 there is the most important, the most important sentence in all the world. 
In Ephesians chapter 1, there's probably the most beneficial sentence in all the world. But this paragraph here is probably the most precious paragraph in all the world. If you ask Christians around the world, of all ages and stages and all cultures, you say, what is the most precious paragraph in all the world? I reckon it probably be verses 38 to 39. And here we learn that God loves us and nothing can separate us from him. Verses 35 to 39. Let me read it to you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. From the events of life and the accusations of enemies, Paul now turns to the the general question of hardships and difficulties in life. Many of them come from his own experience. Verse 35, can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Can anything rip us out of his love? You see, even if we've lost all confidence, is there something at the end he'll say, I've had enough, I've had enough, off you go. Is there anything that could rip us out of his hand? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In verse 36, he quotes from Psalm 44, which laments the sufferings of the righteous. To observe that Christians plainly do suffer. We do. Not only the sickness and pain of life in a corrupted world, but also the hostility and persecution for our faith that comes to all who live a righteous life. I was reading the other day that in the 20th century, 119 million people died for being Christians. It's not exactly unusual. Verse 37 comes the triumphant conclusion, no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, even if they, the, storm, the police storm in here and they grab us and take us off to a, sale, uh, to, to a cell and torture us and beat us to death, whatever they do with us, God will be able to help us not only to survive into heaven, but actually to turn those events for our becoming more like Jesus. For he who loved us is God. This love originates with the Father, it's expressed in the Son, it's applied by the Spirit to us. And so verse 38, this climactic conclusion, I am convinced. I am convinced. It's the conviction of his life and ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Do you hear it? You'll need to remember this the rest of your life. That to the most extreme dimensions of life, nothing can separate us. From the love of God in Christ. He says, neither death nor life, that is the experiential dimension. Whether as we lie perhaps in some pain, dying of cancer in a hospital bed, or as we lie on our backs soaking in the sun on holiday, 
Whether we face angels or demons, that's the spiritual dimension. Whether God's protective angels or Satan's malicious demons. Neither the present nor the future nor any powers. That's the historical dimension. Whether now, today, tomorrow, it work. In 40 years' time, forevermore. Neither height nor depth. There's dimensions of status. In great success, when you've just achieved and completed some great project, when you've just got engaged, you've just had your first child or your grandchild, and you feel on top of the world. Or whether you've lost it all and you're at the bottom of the pit. Nor anything else in all creation. That is, whatever happens, wherever we go, whatever we've done, whatever suffering we must endure, whatever happens to us, Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. To take up my earlier illustration, not only are we in a chairlift, not only is there a cover against all accusations, but we actually find that the Spirit of God is actually in the chairlift with us and will never leave us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can stop him loving you. God loves you and he loves me. He loves all whom he's brought to Christ. And he's proved it and written it in the blood of the cross. And so everything can be faced and all can be risked because nothing can separate us from the love of God is in Christ. And so this love, you see, is worth telling other people about. That they too might know his love as they face the sufferings of this world. And it's worth remembering as we go into the week and into the coming years, and as we suffer and face hardships, and remember these words, nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Perhaps a moment of quiet for us to thank the living God from our own hearts for his love. Living God, almighty God, our heavenly Father, how we praise and thank you that you work all things together, that we might become like Christ in glory. We praise and thank you that since you are now for us, no one can succeed in separating us from you. How we praise and thank you that you love us with such a powerful strength, that nothing can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for your love. We don't deserve it. But we thank you how you've shown it in Christ. We thank you that we're on our way to be with you forever and nothing can stop us getting to glory. And so we pray, Lord, you strengthen our hearts and especially those of us who are struggling at the moment. Lift our hearts to look up to heaven where you are 
where the Lord Jesus is interceding for us in the confidence that you will take us home to be with you one day and give us opportunities to speak to others this week, to tell them of your great love. And we ask it for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen.